0: This is Dr. Amy Hofnagel from the University of Florida in Jacksonville, and today we're talking with, talking with Dr. Sloan about intraoperative neuromonitoring beyond the anesthetic technique. Dr. Sloan is a professor emeritus of anesthesiology at the University of Colorado. In addition to an MD, Dr. Sloan has both a PhD and an MBA. Many of you will have attended his lectures and workshops on neuromonitoring. He's published dozens of articles on this subject, and we are honored to have him today for this episode of the SNAC Periscope. Todd, on behalf of the Education Committee at SNAC, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I was hoping we could start out with you telling us all how it was that you came to be a neuroanesthesiologist.
1: Well, when I was in my residency, I was enchanted by the interaction of physiology and anesthesia with neuroanesthesia, fabulous mentor as a resident, his name was Tony Code, I think he got the Snack Teaching Award a year or two ago, and I would just enchanted by, the, by neuroanesthesia, the interplay of how anesthesia really made a, a difference in the, the brain in particular, and I, I decided that was where I wanted to pursue my career.
0: So what mentors have you had along the way, and how
1: have they helped with your development? Well, in addition to Tony, um, when I left Northwestern to uh, go to the University of Texas in San Antonio, where I had the great fortune of working with Marie Solvin. And when I left the uh, University of Texas to go to Colorado, I had the great fortune to work with Leslie Jameson and uh, Dan Chanick. Those steps along the way made a great difference in my career and helped me move from one place to the next. And in addition, not to be forgotten, uh, while I was at the University of Texas, uh, I had uh, the great opportunity to work with Bedron Delitas, who at that time was the major force behind motor of Potentials. And he not only helped me work uh, within that realm, he allowed me to join the international community in uh, neuromonitoring, which has been a great help along the way.
0: Can you give us a brief description of how inter- neuromonitoring started and how it developed?
1: Back in the 1970s, there was a great interest on a couple of different fronts about trying to better understand the interaction of surgery in the nervous system in an attempt to reduce the risks of bad outcomes. Here in the United States, in Cleveland, Clyde Nash, who is an orthopedic surgeon, working with Rich Brown, who was a PhD uh, in electrical engineering, the two of them decided that they wanted to try to reduce the risk of scoliosis. Clyde was an orthopedic surgeon, and he knew at that time the risk of a young healthy person becoming paralyzed with scoliosis correction was in the range of about 1%. And they applied the technique of somatosensory potentials thanks largely in part to Rich Brown's design of the equipment uh, at that time. Potential equipment was large, bulky, very sensitive, and carting around to the operating room was a great challenge. But Rich redesigned the equipment, and they applied that to scoliosis and discovered that there was a marked improvement in outcome, and that sort of set the stage for launching into uh, scoliosis on a larger scale, and then ultimately spine surgery more in general. Uh, also in the U.S., we had Betty Grundy, who's an anesthesiologist, who was working with the group on the East Coast, trying to deal with the problems uh, with posterior fossa surgery. And Augie Mohler, who uh, is a Ph.D. and a, an expert in monitoring the auditory system and cranial nerves, working with her and Peter Janetta and a variety of other surgeons, Began to apply the uh, those techniques, EMG of the facial nerves and auditory monitoring in posterior fossa, and that that really launched things. Actually, Betty really put the stamp of anesthesia into monitoring at that point. She was, had great insight that we would be, as anesthesiologists, be key to the success. And now there were also there were also centers of excellence in Uh, Japan, and in the U.K. as well, and that, so in the 70s, this sort of application and recognition that it could be helpful to surgeons and improving outcome got launched.
0: How has the role of the anesthesiologist in all of this changed over time?
1: Well, in the the early days, um, I don't think we as anesthesiologists in general realized the importance that we would ultimately play in this. Betty was very insightful about that, but what was going on was the the people doing the monitoring didn't, they knew that anesthesia was important, but most of us in anesthesia didn't really recognize the key role that we would play. SEP so was one of the early techniques, and it's reasonably tolerant of a certain amount of ventilational agents, so it wasn't too much of a problem being recorded. When EMG recordings, particularly the cranial nerves, came into being, muscle relaxants then became uh, more of an issue. but fortunately, those early techniques were not that sensitive to anesthesia. Uh, as the techniques, however, evolved, particularly as we moved into the realm of patients who were much more challenging to record. Older folks have myelopathy, (laughs) and of course, you and I both recognize that we're operating on a progressively older and a progressively more complicated neurologic system in our patients. And those patients added some challenges, as did particularly motor remote potentials. And that evolved the need for anesthesia to become far more interactive uh, with the monitoring. And today, I think we realize we have the great fortune of a lot of good intravenous drugs that we didn't have in those early days. But we began to realize uh, along the way that that interplay of the anesthetic and the monitoring was really put the anesthesiologist in a very intimate relationship with the monitoring. I, I can remember in the early days of scoliosis, since I had the great fortune of being involved in the anesthesia as well as the monitoring, it was very clear that in the challenging patients, as you turned the halothane, which was our major drug then, as you turned the halothane up, you basically turned down the monitoring. And uh, we realized that for those challenging patients that we needed to migrate into the more injury-based techniques. And I think that's where neuroanesthesia uh, was uh, a great help, because uh, in those early days of palatine, you realized that was not the the best anesthetic for the brain in terms of swelling and, and operating. And as a consequence, the, more, uh, the higher use of, of opioids rather than higher doses of inhalational agents was favorable for the brain, which was also more favorable for the monitoring. So it was a very logical place for intravenous techniques to grow out of uh, neural anesthesia as say, opposed to orthopedics or other techniques. Now, I should also say that uh, in those early days when monitoring was just getting started, the wake-up test was one of the standard techniques for the spine surgery. And, of course, to get a wake-up test, you need to have a more intravenous space technique with less inhalational agents, and as a consequence, the two merged together very nicely, so we transitioned very easily into the intravenous techniques, which then uh, allowed the development of more of potentials where that's really key to the success of the monitor.
0: What do, you, the what do you see the role of neuroanesthesiologists as in the future of neuromonitoring?
1: Well, we know that the neuromonitoring appears to be playing a larger role in surgery, and anesthesiologists in general and anesthesiologists who deal with the brain and spinal cord in particular see an ever-increasing uh, contact with the neuromonitoring teams. But at the same time, we begin to notice that the monitoring team usually consists of a technical expert in the operating room with their consultants and assistants being uh, located remotely, usually over an Internet connection. And what that means is the anesthesiologist ends up playing a far more central role in the monitoring than, than we have in the past since changes in, in the physiology that we measure and manage, changes in positioning, changes in our anesthetic agents uh, play an important role in the monitoring. Uh, when changes occur in, during the surgery, the anesthesiologist plays a central role in trying to make sure that the neural environment is as optimal as possible And that any of those things that we have contact with intimately in positioning physiology and anesthesia aren't the ones that are causing the changes in the monitoring that would otherwise confuse whether the surgeon needs to reevaluate what they're doing. And I think for that reason, many of us feel that the anesthesiologist uh, needs to have as good a knowledge as possible not only of the anesthesia that supports the effectiveness of the monitor, but also allows the anesthesiologist to interact with the monitoring team. In fact, we are a part of the monitoring team to make sure that if something occurs in the operating room, that we that we are able to isolate out things that would otherwise confuse the surgeon and not allow them to make the most effective use of the monitor. So, I again, I see us playing a far more central role uh, in the future with the monitoring of trying to ensure its its quality and its effectiveness.
0: Uh, What role has SNAC played in the development of this and in your career?
1: Well, I have to say that SNAC has been absolutely fabulous. You, You can sit in isolation with a good mentor, but without the opportunity to interact at a larger scale, it, it really makes an enormous difference. And again, the international community became extremely helpful along the way, particularly when motor of potentials were were being developed. But SNAC has always stood as a consistent, solid backbone of the interaction uh, that I've had with our colleagues in neuroanesthesia. Because, again, neuroanesthesia, the it's a great interest to me in that consistent interaction with colleagues across the country and across the world as well have been very, very helpful in presenting some work, getting feedback, uh, learning what other people are thinking and doing, and then attending the meetings to to get the enrichment of the, of the science as well as the clinical realm. So I've, I've been very grateful to Stack, and I think that it's been very, very helpful in allowing me to move forward with my career. What what I've learned over the years is that actually what's most important is not the answer uh, to the research, it's the question. It's finding the right question. Once you find that, that unlocks the opportunity to move forward and learn. And, of course, always brings up more questions along the way.
0: All right. Thank you.